the show. I'm your host, Mike, and thank you for joining me for this solo review. Now, a little over a year ago, I spoke about a unique drug film that told the story that neither condones nor condemns drug use or abuse. It simply told the story about a man involved with different toxic relationships and his journey to kick them all. This film has garnered a lot of success and is considered a classic by many, including myself. This film is, of course, Danny Boyle's Trainspotting. Now, like I said before, this film holds a special place in people's hearts and minds for its compelling story, realistic characters, distinctive visuals, and a speedy and stylistic fluidity. Trainspotting is based on the novel of the same name, and from what I understand, follows much of the plot uh, from the novel. In 2002, Irving Welsh, the author of Trainspotting, released a sequel to Trainspotting entitled Porno, where we follow the characters getting involved in the pornographic business. Uh, after Porno, he, Irving Welsh had um, written a prequel story to Trainspotting entitled Skag Boys in 2012, which you know follows all the main characters of Trainspotting and Porno and how they the events leading up to train spotting and how you know they got really involved in their vices at such a young age so with all this potential material and the critical and audience success why did the filmmakers take 20 years to make a sequel well from interviews and film commentaries Danny Boyle has mentioned that he was interested in telling the stories of the adult versions of these characters now mind you guys adult is a pretty subjective term considering in the original film or story the characters are adults by age, and they range in the mid to late 20s. So Boyle was more fascinated with the idea of seeing these characters mature and come to terms with the actions they had taken during their youth. A common theme seen throughout Trainspotting 2 is the distinct distinction between nostalgia and memorial, which the filmmakers do walk that line extremely close. But before we get into the film itself, I want to look at the reception of Trainspotting 2 and my own personal recollection when this film came out. So at the time of this recording, July 7th, 2018, Trainspotting holds a modest review across, you know, the typical review platforms. It has a 7.2 on IMDb, a 79 on Rotten Tomatoes, and a 67 on Metacritic. Now, you all know how I feel about online review sites, but however, when the film came out, I mostly heard mixed to borderline negative reviews, which shocked me, which this ties back into a point that I'll uh, touch on later. So, for those that have listened to my review of Trainspotting a year ago, you all know that I love this movie, and it's no surprise that when I heard that there was a sequel in production for Trainspotting, to say I was excited is an understatement. When I heard the news, I kept searching everything for a teaser, and when it was released, I couldn't get enough of it. There were so many little, little referential details from, you know, the visual callbacks and the music cues, but then there is Boyle's unique visual flair also present in the trailer. And guys, I can't express how excited I was. I I must have wa- I don't even I I lost track how many times I watched a trailer. And when the film was released in the United States, it was from my understanding, I thought it was only going to be limited release. So, I when I heard this, I was like, you know, I, oh man, I have to see this right now, and Brian and I, we had seen the release, we bought tickets, we took a train into Philly, and we had to walk, you know, 15, 20 minutes from the station, and it was like a, I think it was like a 7 o'clock showing, so we were in Philly until maybe like 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night, uh, and just walking the streets, and 
but you know none of that mattered to me i was so amped for this film and i think we got there right in time when the previews were playing and and then the film started and you know what i really enjoyed it i was really into it so much so that i saw the film again in theaters when it was i guess more widely released but i bring up this story because when i was seeing the general general reviews i was hearing that the film serves nothing more than a nostalgia fest for fans of the original. Roger Ebert's Christy Lemire gave the film a 2 out of 4 stars, calling it an absolute rehash, with Boyle playing it strangely safe. His signature visual uh, verve is there. It's narrative drive that's missing. There was also Josephine Livingstone from the New Republic saying, The sequel to the 1990s classic is the latest evidence of an ongoing obsession with that indulgent decade. And so, initially, I thought these claims were, I'm going to be honest, I thought they were bullshit. Uh, sure, the film wasn't as great as the original, but both films are trying to tackle two different messages while having different backdrops of history and uh, history of production. And at first, I thought the critiques were too harsh for the film, that the critics were expecting something on par as The Godfather Part Two, or, you know, ironically, T2, Terminator 2. However... As time passed on and I've let my fanboy hype die down a little bit, I have come to the I've come to realize that maybe the critics weren't entirely wrong, but to a certain point. So let's break the film down per usual style of the show. So I'm gonna be talking about the story and the characters, the themes of maturity and nostalgia, the and my general thoughts, which will lead me to my overall problems with the film and closing thoughts and recommendations, things like that. So, let's get into the story. 20 years later, Mark Retton, played by Ewan McGregor, returns to Edinburgh in the wake of a pending divorce, a corporate merger that cost him his job, and a life-changing heart attack. Hoping to escape the realization of middle age, he goes to the only place that he could ever call home. There, waiting for him, his old mates, Daniel Spud Murphy, Ewan Bremer, and Simon Sickboy Williamson, played by Johnny Lee Miller, as well as freshly escaped convict Francis Begbie, played by Robert Carlyle. Tensions are high as the gang is reunited and fall back into their old habits of a life gone by. So despite the story chock full of convenience, what's interesting about this story in particular is that, unlike the original, it's not Renton's story. Now, Danny Boyle would disagree with me, saying that it's everybody's story, but with the large amount of character focus and narration, the original is definitely Renton's focus. However, with Trainspotting 2, Renton seems to take that back uh, a back seat from the starlight. And yes, I can see that his return is what sparks the main plot of this film, but each character has a more equal role in the story. But despite this, however, I would argue that Trainspotting 2 is indeed Spud's story. And it's because of and because of this, Spud steals the show. Spud is the only character who shows really any real substantial growth. Uh Renton and Sickboy kind of just remain the same wannabe criminals who have nothing better to do, and Begbie just ends right back up in jail. But I'll touch on Begbie later on. Uh but what's really frustrating about the characters in this film is that they, obviously with the exception of Spud, don't really change at all. Despite the age and experience, they are still the same characters from the original film. And, you know, hey, that would be okay, but Boyle himself chose 20 years later specifically to tell, or to, 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 sh- to have the, to tell that tale 
to the audience to see the baggage that these characters have acquired throughout their lives. And this is great. This is a great concept in theory, but the baggage that these characters have is rather weak. And by baggage, I don't really see any internal struggle with the past. I see baggage represented in this film as having, you know, a kid, which Begbie isn't really present for, a heart attack or divorce, or heart attack and divorce, which doesn't really come back into the narrative at all, and being 20 years older. So, like I said, the only real character that has quote-unquote baggage is Spud. We start the film with a hilarious yet poignant speech from Spud about being an addict. We see him systematically lose everything dear to him, his family, his job, his stability, and this is all told through the analogy of daylight savings time messing up his schedule. But it's all one giant metaphor for addiction. Spud is saying he doesn't have time for day-to-day worries because of the grip heroin has over him. Sure, he says he can fight he can fight it all he wants, but ultimately heroin will win. Now this is according to Spud. Now what I really like about this character is that he starts the film as an addict at his absolute lowest. You know, he's trying to commit suicide. But the film ends with Spud on, you know, I take it as a hopeful note that hopefully he remains clean. I say hopeful because throughout the entirety of the film, we the audience see Spud actually struggle and try to overcome his addiction. And he is actively trying, which is, you know, more to say what other characters do, but as Ryan puts it, get addicted. Or at least Spud is trying to find a healthier addiction. So he starts with exercising, and almost comically, you know, with the boxing and stuff like that. But then he finds his true passion in writing. And Spud uses his newfound talent of storytelling to channel his urges urges and frustrations to conquer his addiction. Through his writing, Spud is the only character to actually reflect on his life and try and learn from the past rather than simply remembering, you know, that it happened like Renton and Sickboy do throughout the film. I think there are three specific moments that reaffirm my hope that Spud remains clean in the future. So the first follows the Raging Spud boxing segment, when Spud leaves the gym and sees the back half of the opening montage of the original Choose Life. So in that that moment of uh, Renton and Spud are stealing from the department store and they're being chased, we, we find the back half right before Renton gets hit by the car. So this is a pivotal moment because Spud is not only remembering his past, he is learning from the past. He is reflecting on his past mistakes and understanding how wrong they really were. And you get that given his somber tone and the film's uh, somber tone and the demeanor when thinking back. At this point, I think it's the inception for Spud to you know, start re-piece, or, you know, piecing his life uh, together because he had missed so much of it due to his addiction. And we have a slower rendition of Born Slippy, uh, the and it's the beginning half, which was something I really think is a great song. But, yeah, so the, 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 the somber tone of the demeanor when thinking back, and you can compare this with Sick Boy and Renton in, in the bar in an earlier scene. Uh, they look back fondly at their first hit, romanticizing the experience by saying that Renton's blood runs through Sick Boy's veins. This experience pushes and allows Spud to begin, uh, begin writing about his memories, as I mentioned. So, moving on, the second moment comes following the memorial for Tommy, following that spat between Renton and Sick Boy, which I'll, I'll get into that soon as well, because that was a very rough scene. 
But so we're back in the in the Sc- uh, Scottish countryside, and and it's it's very similar to the original scene. Uh, after returning, like I said, from the Scottish country, sick boy and Renton relapse and get high via heroin injection. Now, this is exactly, like I said, this is what ha- exactly what happened in the first film. After they went to the uh, Scottish countryside, they, I think, Renton says, "We all made the unanimous decision to get high again and start using again." And in, it's during this scene that while the trippy and drug-induced visions of Gazelle are running through the plains of Africa, Queen is kind of hintly playing in the background. Uh, Sick Boy, and, and while Sick Boy and Renton are enjoying their high, the camera slowly pans over to Spud, who is huddled in the corner. And not only huddling, he looks scared and unsure. He looks like a child. I remember saying that specifically to Brian after we watched this film. And what I love about this moment is that for the first time, Spud is actively denying the enticing nature of his addiction, even as his so-called, quote-unquote, mates are using now, this is a seemingly small moment, but it's a massive victory for Spud, because for the first time in his life, he was able to say no to his vice. Now, my final big moment comes at the very end of the film, when Veronica promises to send uh, whatever money to Spud, and he responds, don't send it to him, because he isn't sure that he could resist the temptation to you know, spend it on more uh, heroin. Veronica then suggests that she sends the money to his ex-wife and son, which Spud agrees to. This moment, to me, is what solidifies Spud's character arc. From what I've been told and what I could gather, a true addict would have taken that money and done with, with and done with it whatever they please. And in here, Spud is a recognizing that he is a true problem, b recognizing he more than likely couldn't resist the temptation to buy more drugs, and c thinks of his family in this moment, and and, and specifically thinks of his, thinks of his family instead of himself. And the moment is the culmination of 20 years of addiction, but with maturity, Spud is able to set forth on a path of recovery and a better life. Or so I hope. And I know I just spent a fair amount of time on the character of Spud, but, you know, the other characters don't really have much to talk about. Like I said, Renton and Sick Boy kind of, just, they regress to the same characters they were in the original Train Spotting. But, and, and they refuse to let go of the past and refuse to change. And... I, and I definitely want to talk about that scene real quick that I mentioned on the on the countryside, and and it kind of happens, like I mentioned in the bar earlier, when Sick Boy's trying to convince Mark and Mark Renton to go into business with him. This scene in the countryside, I believe the quote that Sick Boy says to Renton is, "You're a tourist in your own in your own past," and that's kind of one way you could think about this film and I guess in a negative light is that you're just so caught up in the past and, and you're just you're just constantly thinking about it and not really moving on from it but this scene like this scene in particular all it is I, I, it was very tense because this is when we brought up you know Tommy uh, sick boy brings up Tommy and the fact that essentially it was Renton's fault because he sold him his first heroin uh, hit, and and then that led to his subsequent addiction, then contraction of HIV, and then his death. Oh, HIV/AIDS, and then his death. But then Renton comes right back and says, "Well, what about Baby Dawn, the the, uh, the dead baby? It's like he was, she was your child. She'd be a woman by now, and you just let her, you just let her die." And this kind of felt very odd in this in this movie because you know with the themes of of maturity and change, this doesn't really, they're just like, they're fighting like teenagers again, they're just trying to do as low blows as they could, and it's weird, because this movie is all about 
these two characters uh, rekindling their friendship, but this is like halfway through the movie, and they are throwing uh, insults at each other and just like bringing up like painful memories, like it's nothing. But you know, that's this that's kind of I guess I can say that for some of the things that I didn't really like about the movie, but. I mentioned uh, the themes of maturity, and this is the perfect segue to talk about it. So, I want to talk about the themes of maturity and nostalgia. So, despite lack of character outside of Spud, Boyle wanted to focus on how these men have changed in the last 20 years. And to me, this seems a little misguided, because, like I've been saying, none of the characters seem to change until the events of this film takes place. The The ideologies don't change, and behaviors are still the same, despite 20 years of time. And I'm not going to focus on Sick Boy and Retin that much, because it's funny, because they are the primary characters driving the plot of this film forward. And I already talked about Spud in depth. Begbie, however, he is something that is worth mentioning and reviewing. So Begbie is a character that I didn't expect much growth to occur throughout time to begin with, which is fine, because he's a fucking psychopath. <laughs> Every character has a vice, be it heroin, cocaine, lust for power, sex, etc. But Begbie's vice is that of violence, and man, is he ad- is he addicted. And although I'm not telling you guys anything that you didn't know, the filmmakers make it obvious following the chase with Renton, which, because at this in this scene at the or at the very end, I should say, he is stimulated by the vi- by, by the violence and thus causing a massive erection from all the Viagra he is taking. And th- and for those of you who don't understand how Viagra works, Viagra you take it, but that the Viagra is not what causes the erection. It just is what maintains the erection. You still need to be stimulated, and throughout the scene. Drug, uh, alcohol, smoking, they're not stimulating Bigby at the scene. Uh, the thoughts of, you know, flirtation, that obviously didn't do anything. It was only after he tried killing Renton that he gets this throbbing erection. So, again, it's just kind of really hitting hitting you over the head that he's stimulated by violence. But I don't really want to focus on the violent tendencies tendencies of this character, though. I really want to focus on the relationship between Begbie and his son. This is where the theme of maturity and acceptance starts to make their way into the film. And like I mentioned earlier, Begbie escapes from prison, returns home, and enlists the uh, help of his son as a protege in his criminal undertakings. It's clear that his son, from from the get-go, despite you know, not wanting to participate, like, he has nothing, he does not want anything to do with this, but he wants nothing more than to make his non-existent father proud of him. After his son, you know, comes with him and, and then rejects it, Begbie has to come to terms with his own mortalities and values when his son ultimately does reject that way of life. And what's interesting about the film version of Begbie is that he actually, you know, reconciles with his son in the end of the, at the end of the film, in indeed saying that he is proud of his son and begins to conquer his own inner demons and issues that he had around his own father and it was a very and i really enjoyed the one scene um in this film that was apparently included in the first i think it was the first novel when uh you know the gang when they were you know in their 20s they were you know going through an old abandoned train yard and they found a drunkard and he, and you know, he was, and Be- and Begbie was intimidated. Like he just kind of shut up, and for, and that kind of struck, you know, the guys, 
it made them remember because Begbie is such a psycho, he doesn't ever back down from anything. But it turns out that the drunkard is his father. And so it's interesting to see that in this film and that he's, you know, he's finally coming to terms with, with his own non-existent father and the issues that he's had. And throughout, and it's also interesting to note that throughout the two films, this is the only tender moment that we have seen with this character and it's and honestly it's a touching scene it's a refreshing change for the character of Begbie and like I said Begbie is finally accepting his responsibility as a father in his own way and thinks above his own needs sort of so I'll, I'll give it that for what it is and it's here that I think Trainspotting 2 really shines having characters question their their past decisions and actions and coming to terms with their own mortality and existence up to this point. The problem is that the film focus, focuses so little on these deep messages and chooses to focus on Renton and Sick Boy rekindling a rather boring and toxic friendship. And as well as their antics that really have no impact to the overall plot. In short, I, I can't, and I really can't believe I'm saying this, there is too much of Renton and Sick Boy and not enough of Begbie and Spud. Renton and Sick Boy serve as the main supply of nostalgia and original train spotting callbacks. Now, I think that these callbacks work in two separate ways. In one way, the callbacks allow parallels to be drawn between both films and possibly suggest that these characters are maybe not meant to change, but on the other hand, the callbacks border on unoriginal means to remind people of a better and more meaningful film and story. So, and although I see merits in both, I'm going to side right in the middle and say that both assertions are correct. While yes, some of the callbacks are kind of pointless and they're, they're, they're only there to say, hey, remember how much you love the original? There are parallel images that serve a larger purpose to the theme of the to the to the idea that the past is doomed to repeat itself. So let's first focus on the point of meaningless callbacks because you know, guys, I'm not gonna lie, there are quite a few of those. So there are some callbacks that are majorly distracting, and this is coming from a bit, pretty big fan of the original Train Spotting. So starting with the most distracting. There are these freeze frames that happen sporadically throughout the film. Now, granted, the original Train Spotting also had freeze freeze frames sporadically, but they served a stylistic purpose that fit the narrative of the film. These the freeze frames in the original film are similar similar to those in Scorsese's Goodfellas, in my opinion, in that they are a dramatic pause of action followed by some sort of narration or or introduction, things like that. And it's an interesting stylistic choice that adds to the narrative. But in Train Spotting 2, however, the freeze frames are seemingly random and don't contribute to the style or narrative. They disrupt the flow of action and take the audience out of the scene. Because instead of taking in this one frame and trying to looking at it all, like, how is this significant? You, the audience, at least I questioned, whether the copy of my film is messed up in some capacity. And listening to the commentary, Boyle describes these freezes as snags in time, which both call back to the first film while having a different meaning in this context. Now, I completely disagree with, with Boyle for the reasons previously stated, but a common phrase that he uttered throughout the commentary is that of muscle memory. The characters are repeating what had happened in the past. And yeah, it works in some cases, which I'll get to, but 
Sometimes they really do not. Another example that is that is kind of baffling is the choice of having Renton's character reenact his classic pose and smile from the beginning of the original film. Now, this is something that I really liked in the first film because even in the midst of a police chase and 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 him stealing, Renton still found time to mock the middle class that he felt so compelled to quote unquote rebel against, and it worked there. But and when I saw it in the trailer, I was really excited to see this new scene and and what did they and what they did with it. And then I saw the scene, and guys, it makes no fucking sense. So the context: Begbie, you know, the psychopath who will kill Renton over stealing four thousand pounds or give or take five thousand U.S. dollars from him twenty years prior. Begbie has found Renton, and a big chase ensues. Begbie then corners Renton in a parking garage at knife point, so Renton hitches a ride on top of a random car to safety. Renton, had, Renton in the in the in the chase is slashed across the arm and is thrown off of the roof of the car, which here is when he gets up and slowly replies with his signature pose. Now, for one, this makes absolutely no sense. This is not muscle memory. This is a classic shoehorn of a classic scene for the sake of saying, hey, remember the first film. It's unoriginal and kind of insulting that they need to throw a reference in to keep attention. It's as if this confrontation wasn't exciting enough. And this confrontation has been built up to throughout the entire film up to this point. It's, it's not a matter of if Begbie and Renton meet up, it's when. So, then there are these small references that you feel like, eh, okay, but it gets to a point where I was thinking, yo, I get it, I love train spotting. let's just please get on with this film, though. So, now on the flip side of things, some pairing and callbacks actually do work very well, and that idea of muscle memory that Boyle was referencing in the commentaries actually does fit. I think the opening the opening of this film encapsulates that idea perfectly. So Trainspotting 2 modernizes the energetic nature of the original while setting a new tone for this film. And but the thing is do they stick to that tone? Uh, that, that's kind of debatable, but I digress. In the original, we have the classic run through the Edinburgh with Iggy Pop's Lust for Life. And here we have Renton running again on a but on a treadmill yet to a, to yet another ke- uh, catchy beat. What's interesting about this scene, though, is that here, Renton is still running, but he's running nowhere, signifying he is going with the motions of life and not really accomplishing anything with his freedom from his toxic friends. And then, to change it up, abruptly, at the end of the scene, Renton collapses from a heart attack in the middle of his run. And from here, a lullaby rendition of Lou Reed's Perfect Day plays as the audience sees the main characters as children playing soccer. Now, this mirrors the original introduction of the characters in the first film playing soccer, as well as the, as well as the freeze frames, but this slower and more nostalgic presentation fit the over, overall tone of the film. Another one that I think works here, and that may be a little controversial, is at least a controversial opinion for me to, to viewers, is the new Choose Life speech from Renton to Veronica. For my research, this seems to be a really this seems to really annoy people, and a lot of people thought that it was too on the nose and not too subtle. Now, I think it's I think what people fail to see though is that it's supposed to be that Renton is having a midlife crisis, and this is a really great presentation and representation of a crisis manifesting into something he can't control. 
What I really like about this scene is how it starts off out with a flash from his youth of him running away from the police, and at the beginning, it starts as if he's reliving the moment. But the brilliance occurs through McGregor's acting and the writing, for he starts off like he's, like I said, reliving his youth, but then it slowly devolves into something much more sad and depressing. Renton becomes a man midway through this who realizes that his life was wasted away, and he really doesn't know how to respond to it. And, you know, I don't know, I thought this scene was really effective, and it was needed and essential for in a film with a tone such as this. So, when it comes to these callbacks, I'm in the middle. Sometimes they are really just infuriatingly pointless, while others work well, you know, in conjunction with the film. So, I want to talk about my general thoughts. Um, the cinematography and visual style is top-notch, per usual with Danny Boyle films. I love the way his camera just moves through the scenes, and his style is a personality of its own. The f- I also think that this film was less depressing than the first Train Spotting, and whether someone likes that or not is a matter of personal preference. Um, I-, I wanted to say, like, my favorite scene of this whole film was... I'm referencing the 19, or I'm sorry, the 1690, I think it was the Protestant scene, where Renton and Sick Boy are trying to rip off this entire bar of these, uh, of these, like, kind of outcasts, and that's exactly why they ripped them off, because they're, he, he, Renton says that they are abandoned by society, but this, they can't rip them off without having to prove themselves to the patrons with a song that is completely made up on the spot, and this part of the film I think it's the most energy, and if anyone's going to remember anything from this film, it's going to be this scene, because it just feels different in the best of ways from, you know, from this whole film as well as train spotting. Um, there's a good blend of humor, unique camera work, my, my favorite shot being the microphone shot, uh, and fantastic acting from both primary cast and the extras. And overall, I just had a good time with the film in, in a visual sense. Um, I also, I guess, want to make a comment that I think Trainspotting 2 is trying to be more funny, and I think it works a little bit better. I know a lot of people consider, and a lot of critics and uh, film historians say that the original Trainspotting was, you know, darkly humorous, and it was, but I never really found the first movie funny. I always kind of took it as just, like, a surrealist work, and more kind of terrifying in that like in the reality shocks that they that that Boyle presents in throughout the story and in his visuals whereas here I actually had you know more laugh out loud moments and you know kind of chuckled moments so I think that's that's just something I want to say about this film in particular but you know all this being said I think the largest problem for me is that this film lacks those gut punches of brutal realism that the first one had. You know, notably the dead baby scene, the withdrawal scene, and the overdose scene. This film doesn't really have those moments. I guess I guess with Spud trying to commit suicide, but you know, it nothing beats Baby Dawn lying in her crib discolored or the shot in in uh from Renton's point of view, uh look like from the the carpet that's very coffin like like he's already six feet in the gra- like he's already like in the grave, 
or the withdrawal scene when it's just trippy, de- like the dead baby on the ceiling, um, the zombie-like Tommy who was already HIV/AIDS infected, uh, the bit like Begbie coming in and in uh, and threatening Mark, or 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 the visions of Spud in jail, like nothing like that is really in this film, and. But but the big question I think for this is can someone who hasn't or who wasn't a fan of the original film still enjoy this? I think yes, but I think that this that Train Spotting Two is definitely geared towards a crowd of people who absolutely love the first film like myself. So I'm gonna move on to my rating and recommendation. So Train Spotting. So the Trainspotting fanboy in me is initially wanted to give this film an 8 out of 10, but I do want to remain impartial and unbiased, so taking into account all my criticisms, the criticisms that I agree with, as well as the positives, I have to give tra- uh, T2 Trainspotting, or Trainspotting 2, a 6 out of 10, which I think is a fair assessment. Trainspotting 2 is a good case of style over substance. The visual style is great, with Danny Boyle's energetic and fantastic uh, directing and his visual eye, but the narrative is just not sufficient or strong enough to carry the visuals. But that being said, I still enjoy the film immensely, and it still serves as a point of inspiration for me. A quick, you know, a quick story about that. When I was undertaking one of my first large-scale set pieces, or large-scale, quote-unquote, as uh, as an amateur filmmaker. I watched this film a few hours before uh, as I was looking over, you know, the screenplay and the storyboard and, you know, to pump myself up and give me some motivation and and just kind of remind myself, like, hey, you can do this. And this is because Danny Boyle is one of those few filmmakers that makes me love film. His style and passion for the subject matter inspires me to make my own content, regardless of the film. So even though I gave this film a 6 out of 10, I still find a lot of enjoyment from the film, and I think it's a must for any train spotting fan. And I think and just i mean I, and for any casual moviegoer, I definitely think you should check this film out, but definitely check out train spotting first so you can catch those details. So with that guys, thank you for listening to this episode of Amateur Autors. I hope you all really enjoyed the episode and please tell us if you did. I I would love nothing more than to hear from all of you. Whether that be leaving a review on iTunes, emailing the personal account, which is mentioned in the post-show closing, or both. Either one, guys. I I really want to hear from you. Uh, A review would mean the world to me and Brian, and just any support is, is awesome. But either way, thank you for always listening, and have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Amateur All Tours. Cover design was created by Sarah Jacobs. You can find more of her work at her own website, Digital Adventures. The opening theme, Dreams, is composed by Joachim Karid. This composition was found using a Creative Commons search. As a small plug, go check out both Sarah and Joachim's work. They are really great and deserve the attention. If you want to drop us a line, which we full-heartedly support, please feel free to contact us at our email, theamateurautorspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, that is one word. You can also find us at Twitter at amateurautorspod. Once again, thank you for supporting the show. Stay tuned for more episodes, and thank you once again.